thesis, instead of just saying that's the way it works and then you know, walking away, we, we took the time to show how we get to that place and how we land in those positions. And, and so we started, uh, for the majority, we broke it into two parts, but for the majority of our time, we, we, we did what, what's called character studies. We, we looked at the major characters of the Old Testament and we asked the question, how does their story point us to the much larger and much more beautiful story of God? We believe that, that Jesus is not only in those stories, but working through those stories and drawing those stories into one central story, His story. Right? And so for most of our time, we walk through those character studies, and it's been great, and it's been good, and we build the whole thing as the greatest action-adventure drama the world will ever know. And as long as you're in the Old Testament, that's a really good description of what the story of God is about. I mean, think about it. There's war, there's conquest, there's the rise and fall of empires. Folks are getting stabbed in the back, literally and, and like metaphorically sometimes. Right? Like, yeah, kids being born to people who shouldn't be having kids. It's, it's a great story. It's a good read if you're paying attention. But the Old Testament isn't the entirety of the Bible. It isn't the entirety of the story of God. It's only phase one. And so we started to look at the second part of God's story uh, in the New Testament. And we learned then that if, if the Old Testament is really kind of this action-adventure drama, the genre of the New Testament would really be more like a chick flick. Yeah, because it ends the same way every great chick flick ends, right? With a wedding and a happily ever after. The story of God really is actually a chick flick. Not because it's got Patrick Dempsey as some modern Prince Charming to be, but because it ends with a wedding. And so we, we took up the habit four weeks ago now of looking at the New Testament through the lens of a, the four stages of a first century Jewish betrothal and wedding. The, the, the hiccup with that, the, the thing that makes that complicated is that when we in the West think of a wedding, what do we think of? We think of a singular event, right? You get all your friends and family into one room, you, everybody's ooing and eyeing at how pretty the bride is, and all those kinds of things, which, by the way, is not the way it would have worked in the first century Jewish world. Nobody's paying attention to the bride in that moment. They're paying attention to the, yeah. It's probably better that we pay attention to the bride. Just backwards to their culture. Right, but here's the deal. We think of a singular event, and so we get everybody in one room, and we ooh and we ah, and everybody talks about how pretty the flowers are, and who made the cake, and where their wedding dress came from, and, and everybody has a great time, and they exchange some rings, and they say some vows, and then they are pronounced husband and wife. And when they're pronounced, everybody claps and cheers, and they stand up, and they throw rights at them for some reason. That doesn't make sense. We don't do that now. It's bubbles now. If you're, yeah. Anyways, but when we in the West think of a wedding, it's a singular event. But that wouldn't have been the case to the to the original audience of the New Testament. That wouldn't have been the case at all. Uh, they, they didn't think of a singular event. They thought of a long string of events, and specifically these events. The ketubah, or the writing, the preparation, the invitation, and the consummation. So what we've been saying all along is that to a Jewish mind in the first century, the whole process was, quote-unquote, a wedding. It wasn't the, the consummation event. It was the whole thing. And it was official from beginning to end. As soon as the, the contract, the covenant, the bridal price was paid, they were hitched. They were together. And it would have taken the official act of divorce to break this thing up, no matter where in the process it was. Right? We said last week, nobody's running off to Vegas here. This is a big, big deal to the first century Jewish world. And it's my belief that if we understand how 
this system works to the first century Jewish mind, we'll actually understand the New Testament better. Like, like there are things in the New Testament that will make more sense if we understand this system. Now, I throw, I've thrown out the disclaimer each week that, that this isn't the only way that we ought to look at the New Testament. It's not the only lens by which we should look at the New Testament. We don't, we don't set those other lenses aside. We, we still talk about uh, covenant. We still talk about atonement. We still talk about creation renewed. We still talk about all of these things. Those are other appropriate and good and valuable lenses to look at the New Testament. But it's my belief that if we understand this lens we'll actually protect ourselves from misreading the Bible in some places. All right? So we started walking through these four pieces. So what are they? Well, the ketubah would begin with the bridegroom leaving his father's house and going to the home of the one he was pursuing. He would sit down with his potential bride and her family and write a covenant, terms of agreement for both parties, along with an agreed-upon bridal price to be paid by him. If the bride and her family agreed to the terms, the covenant would be sealed with the act of drinking a cup of wine, and the bridegroom would then go on to secure the payment for the right to marry his betrothed. And we learned several weeks ago that Jesus does exactly this for his bride, the church, right? Jesus left his father's house, and he came to the one that he wanted to marry, the one he wanted to call his own. He took initiative, and he paid the price that was necessary to claim that bride for himself. So what was the price? His own life, his death on the cross, his shed blood actually purchased something for himself. And if you're a Christian, the answer is you. You are not your own, you are bought with a... Yeah, Jesus steps in and does exactly this, but it's not all he does because there's other stages. Next comes the preparation. The bridegroom and the bride separate for an extended period of time, possibly as much as even a year, to prepare in their own ways for the final act of the wedding. The bridegroom returns to his father's house to prepare the couple's future home, and the bride sanctifies herself, sets herself apart by pampering herself with special baths and perfumes so that she could present her body to her husband without spot or wrinkle or blemish. Katie got some new perfume this week. I'm a fan. <laughs> this is what the bride does, right? She pampers herself and presents herself in a way that's pleasing to her husband. Again, we see this play out in the Bible. What, Jesus returns to his father home, father's home to prepare for us a home to be with him forever. And he's waiting patiently for the day when the father will say, okay, go get your girl. Then he'll return and get his girl. That's what happens in the preparation time. And so we, we looked at Jesus' little message to his disciples in John 14 where he says... I go to prepare a place for you. If it was not so, what I've told you. In my, father's house are, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I've told you, that I go to prepare a place for you, he says. And then we looked at Ephesians 5, which tells us that Jesus washes his... Okay. <laughs> Somebody's messing with light switches, I guess, somewhere. All right. Jesus washes his bride in the water of the Word. That we don't cleanse ourselves, but Jesus cleanses us for us. And so we got the ketubah, we got the preparation. What was next? The invitation. The father invites guests into the wedding feast. Preparations are made because the bridegroom will be honored, but you must actually respond to the invitation. Accepting the invitation grants you access to the wonderful celebration unmatched by anything you could find outside the party. It joins you in the act of exalting the son, but spurning the invitation leaves you outside the gate and actually insults the host. 
The invitation is freely offered, but it cannot be ignored, it cannot be reviled, and it cannot be counterfeited. And so, last week we looked at the parable Jesus tells in Matthew 20. It's a parable uh, about a wedding feast, and it's directed right at the religious leaders in the temple, the religious Jewish leaders of his day, a, a group of Jewish leaders who largely ignored and reviled God's call. And even though God was gracious to them, even though He was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love towards them, they would not accept His invitation. And so the call went out to others. Went out to the Gentiles. The king sends messengers out to everyone who will come into the feast. And so our question last week was really simple. Have you responded to the invitation? Have you responded to the invitation? And so we looked at the ketubah, we looked at the preparation, we looked at the invitation. What's the last piece? The consummation. And some of y'all are getting nervous because you know what this word means in this context. Don't worry, nothing over a G rating today. Maybe PG. So we're going to be in Matthew uh, 25 in just a second. Um, but before we get there, we need to kind of set the stage a little bit. Um, last week in Matthew 22... We uh, talked about how the setting for all of this playing out is what we call Holy Week, or the, the last week that Jesus was alive before he died on the cross, right? And so Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's spending a lot of time in and out of the temple. Uh, he's definitely in some other places, but he'll go into the temple for a while and get in a lot of trouble, and then he'll back away and do some other stuff, and he'll go into the temple a while and get in a lot of trouble. And so that's kind of the, the scene for the last week of Jesus' life before he dies on the cross. And in chapter 22, we talked about how he's kind of setting himself up in direct conflict with the Jewish leaders of the temple. Right? He's, he's got these parables that he's telling, and he's telling them specifically that, that they're about to be replaced. Right? That, that's kind of the stories that, that, that are rolling off the tongue here. And we didn't look at chapter 23. Chapter 23 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Um, we call them the woe to you statements. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes, the, the, the priests in the temple. And, and if you're the type of person who likes to daydream about telling somebody off, I'm not that guy at all. If you are that person, one, repent of your sin. And two, go read where Jesus tells off the Pharisees in a totally 100% redeemable, righteous way. He goes off on them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. There's a, there's a tone of heartbreak in those woes, but he is angry. He's angry. And chapter, chapter 24 begins with Jesus storming out of the temple. And his boys, the disciples, are trying to grab him and slow him down. They're, like, they're trying to get him to turn around and look at the temple and see how lovely it is and see how much tradition is there and see how much history is there. And they're, they're trying to slow him down. They're like, Jesus, but don't you see what's going on here? This is, this is our whole world. This is valuable to us. This is great and this is good. And Jesus tells them that it won't be a whole generation before the entire temple is leveled. In fact, he literally says there won't be a single stone standing on top of another. And so chapter 24 rolls out with Jesus and his disciples walking up the Mount of Olives and sitting down and teaching. And the disciples have a few questions about his last comment. Like if your entire world was revolved around the temple and Jesus just said, there's coming a day when not one stone will be left on another. Do you think you got some questions for Jesus? 
Probably so. Now, the, the Mount of Olives is, is important for a couple of reasons, uh, several reasons, but uh, probably most importantly is that it's a mountain. I know that's a complete shock to you. It's a mountain that's a couple miles to the east of the Temple Mount, and it's taller than the Temple Mount. And so if Jesus and his boys march up on the, temp, on the Mount of Olives and sit down, what are they looking at? They're looking down on the temple, Right? And so chapter 24 and 25 of Matthew is what we call the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is going to give several teachings, and it's an extended teaching with several pieces in it. He's going to give this extended teaching about what we call the second coming, his return. He's got some parables in there. He's got some, some uh, just outright, this is what's going to happen kind of stuff in there. And so Jesus gives his boys... A big chunk of our understanding of eschatology, the, the end times, like and some of it comes from Revelation, a lot of it comes from Revelation, but also a big chunk of it comes from things outside of Revelation, specifically Matthew 25. Jesus talks about signs of the end of the age. He talks about the coming of the Son of Man. He talks about how no one knows the day or the hour of his return. And then, and then in chapter 25, Jesus gives a couple of parables to illustrate what he's talking about. And in chapter 25, verse 1, we read this. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. And For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came, saying, also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So Jesus is on a little tear here about being ready when the time comes, right? And we could have just as easily looked at this text last week when we were talking about the invitation. There are folks who are ready and there are folks who very clearly are not. There are folks who are prepared for the bridegroom to suddenly show up and then there's others that, well, they need a little more coaxing and they didn't get all their stuff together and now there's a problem. You have some who are ready and become a part of the wedding feast, and you have some that are shut outside and kept away. So how does this story help us understand the idea of the consummation? I mean, even kind of a sad story? Well, not for the ones who made it inside. Right? They're having a good time. They're having a, a great time. So what's going on in the story, and how does it help us this morning? What's the deal with the ten virgins? What is the, what's that about? Well, think of them like bridesmaids. They're not the bride. They're the company of the bride. They're hanging out with the bride. And, and when news comes that the bridegroom is going to be showing up soon, their job is to wait at the bride's home and celebrate the arrival of the bridegroom. Their job is to, to, to line the road holding a special torch pointing the way to his prize. The job of the bridegroom is to celebrate the bride. The job of the bride. Um, the job of the bridesmaids, the ten virgins in our story, 
is to celebrate the coming of the bridegroom. That's what it's about. And so they have to be ready at any moment. And when it's go time, it's go time. That's their job. And we learn here from Jesus' parable that some of them, well, they only kind of halfway prepared. And so they've run out of oil for their torches. The problem with halfway preparing those, you don't know exactly when the bridegroom's going to come. And it creates a major problem. They don't know when he's going to show up. They're not prepared when he shows up. But even if it's hard to tell when the bridegroom will show up, it's not hard to tell when he does show up. Because verse 6 says, at midnight there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. See, the job of the best man was to hype up his boy. <laughs> the job of the best man was to celebrate and exalt and let everybody know that the bridegroom was walking in the door. That was the best man's job. And it would not have been uncommon for this whole deal to go down by blowing a trumpet and then shouting. Get that trumpet blast and a cry. Hey, here's a fun exercise. How about we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I got something we can show you today. So 1 and 2 Thessalonians are letters written to a church in Thessalonica or Thessaloniki, if you're looking at a modern map. Yes, it's still there. All right? So the, the two letters that we call 1 and 2 Thessalonians were written by the Apostle Paul. And they were written to a church that was struggling with understanding what exactly Jesus meant by coming back soon. Right? And so it caused all kinds of practical problems for their work ethic and for the way they structured their service and all those kinds of things. And so they were, they, it really kind of fleshed out to them just kind of lazily waiting around for Jesus to come back. It's like, a, no, Paul, Paul tells them no. He writes two letters to correct that understanding. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we read this. But we do not want you to be informed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by, the, by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? The bridegroom comes to collect his bride as his attendants make a big old ruckus about it. And once the bridegroom shows up, what does he do? He collects his bride and carries her home. See why I'm telling you that understanding a Jewish wedding in the first century affects the reading of the Bible? Very much so. Happily ever after. Jesus shows up and brings his bride home. There's a shout, there's a trumpet blast. Time to go get your girl. but we're also not done yet. Because two other things always seem to happen in a chick flick. Chick flicks don't simply end with a guy getting a girl. That's an important piece. Like, if you don't have that piece, it's not actually a chick flick. Right? But two additional things always seem to take place at the ending of every great chick flick movie. Number one, the bad guy is brought to justice. And number two, the good guys throw a party. I mean, isn't that the way your favorite movies always play out? Don't lie, it is. All right. 
Now, every great chick flick has these two elements in them, too. And the biblical version of this reality is most clearly seen in the book of Revelation. So turn with me there. Turn with me to chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. I wish we had time to read all of the back half of Revelation, but we don't. Trust me, I timed it. It would take 20 minutes to read the back half of Revelation. Didn't think it fit into our time this morning. So, but I can hit you with some highlights. Revelation chapter 19. The Apostle Paul is given a vision of a heaven to come uh, at the end of the world. And so in case you've never read Revelation for yourself before, uh, it's full of poetic imagery that, that sometimes is really easy to pin down. Like we know what some stuff means and then there's other stuff that we, we have no idea. And we can take some guesses, but we just don't know. And but to, to, Well, just press with me for a second and I promise we'll tie it up in a pretty little bow. Revelation 19, starting at verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Skip down to verse, or chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of, to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut him and sealed it over him so that she, or so that he, I missed the. Yeah, yeah. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Uh, skip down to verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence. Earth and sky fled away and no one was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Skip down to chapter 21. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more and I saw the holy city new Jerusalem coming down out of the heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of God is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and these are some of my favorite verses in all the Bible verse 4 he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have, his her or have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels, 
angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And, I, and he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Skip down to 22, and I, or verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. Excuse me. And there will be no night there. There will bring, or they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Verse 20, or chapter 22, verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street and of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding, each fr- uh, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him and they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and the night will be no more there will be, there will no, they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign oh, forever and ever verse 6 and He said to me these words are trustworthy and true and the Lord the God of the spirits of the prophets sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place and behold I am coming soon blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book so we don't have a hardline stance when it comes to end times issues around here eschatological issues if you want to use the theological word so National Baptist Church has no official stance on in times issues here. And the reason for that is that we, we honestly, truthfully believe that people who love Jesus and think the Bible is true and authoritative, we honestly believe that they can come to different conclusions about timelines and what this means and what that image means and all those kinds of things. And so we're never going to plant our flag as a church and say, this is a, our specific view of eschatology. But we can and should plant our flag in something. And it's this. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. This is the way the story of God ends, guys. Jesus wins. No matter whatever your hermeneutic for the book of Revelation might be, God will one day be glorified through the decisive and forever defeat of his enemies, and there will never, ever, ever be a need for a sequel. There is no such thing as the story of God part two, electric boogaloo. There's no need for one. It's over. It's over. The good guys, or the bad guys get what they deserve while the good guy stands forever victorious, heals every wound, and gets the girl. This is the way the Bible ends. This is the story of the Bible. See, whether you want to call it an action-adventure drama or a chick flick, it really doesn't matter. The greatest story of all time ends in the greatest way of all time. Happily ever after. This is the way the story of God ends. See, the reason why God let Adam be an idiot in the garden was so that he could set the stage for us to watch him put every single piece back together. And that's exactly what he's doing. And when the day finally gets here that we get to see this unfold before our very own eyes we will not be able to do anything but worship Him forever. 
We're going to be so awestruck by him and what he has done. The natural reaction will be celebration. It will be to glorify him. See, to to see him and his great story correctly is to be caught up in it. So each week we've, we've had these little questions that try to summarize what's going on with the whole deal. And our question this week is incredibly simple. Have you been caught up in his great story? Have you been caught up in his great story? Because hear me, church, every lesser story, every lesser story will be ultimately and forever forgotten. Forever forgotten. It doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't even matter how noble the cause might sound to you and whoever you love. Whoever you want respect from. Charles Spurgeon once said, Build on, ye despots, for time a mightier king than you will tear down all that you build up. Say that again because it's words that we probably don't hear often. Build on, ye despots, for time a mightier king than you will tear down all that you put up. At the end of the day, you can't even beat the clock. And the author and creator imaginer and sustainer of time itself will not even share his glory with the clock. Every lesser story will be undone. But those who pour their lives out for the fame of his name, they will joyfully and lovingly echo the words that John uses to close out his little letter. Come, Lord Jesus. They can't wait for that day. All their work, all their effort, all their toil and striving, all the persecution they've endured, all the whatever you fill in the blank, all of it will pour into that moment with glory and with celebration. Come, Lord Jesus. Because guys, the story of God is no small deal is the greatest action adventure drama slash chick flick slash whatever you want to call it the world will ever know. It's in process from the very beginning of creation to the very end of this world. God is redeeming and saving for one solitary reason that His entire creation will forever see just how good and just how glorious He is. This is the story of God. This is the story of God. So how do we respond to God's Word this morning, right? Because you can't hear his story and not be caught up into it. How do we respond to it? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God today. And you do that best by pressing into him through his word. And so consider starting with the book of Revelation. Good luck. But we believe that God gave it to us so that we may know him. It's not off limits. I don't want to have to answer every question you have, but it's not off limits. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. If that's you, maybe you need to repent of something today. I don't know what that is. But we want to give you a chance to respond today. If you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus. I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. You can respond to God's word too, and you do that by meeting the one that his word is about. Jesus. The white knight came to be the hero of this great story. And I know that sounds corny. 
I, I know that sounds corny, but he also came to rescue the damsel in distress. Maybe those other stories are shadows of something far more eternal. Perhaps those stories that we hear as a, of as a kid and all desperately want to be true actually is true. The white knight comes to rescue. See, our sin separates us from God, the God who is holy, the God who is just, the God who is righteous and will give everyone we just read a while ago exactly what their life deserves. But Jesus steps in and defeats sin and defeats death by dying sacrificially on the cross in our place. The sin debt that you and I owe has been paid in full for all those who will trust in Jesus as Lord. And so if that's you today, maybe you're ready to walk in the grace that he offers. You repent of your sin. You trust him and him alone for salvation. Call on him as Lord. And the Bible teaches that when you do that, you will be saved. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some leaders up front here to talk and pray with you, help you walk through what that next step looks like. Let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for being the God who brings perfect resolution to your great story. You will not share your fame or your glory with another, but you have invited us to feast upon it and enjoy it forever. Any kingdom I build for myself will fail, it will fall, it will fade away. But you are the king who sits on the throne forever. The glory of the nations will be paraded in front of you because you made them. You sustain them. And you save them. God, I thank you for cleansing us from sin. For calling us your own. For wrecking everything that went, for bringing resolution and fixing everything that was wrecked in the garden. You have brought full and final joy. And you are making all things new. God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you change that today? Would you make yourself known to them? As we sing, Help us respond well. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.